Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. What we're going to do today, um, we're going to continue in this mini-series in Ecclesiastes in chapter 3. I tried to get through it, but it's, it's actually a very in-depth part of Scripture in Ecclesiastes. We'll come back to Genesis once I get done with this, and we'll finish off Genesis chapter 11. We'll take a break there. We'll go into something else at that point, because I want to make sure you all have the foundation of Genesis 1 through 11. So I, I think I have probably two more sermons in Genesis to finish, and we'll get that. And then we'll come back later on and visit Abraham after that in chapter 12 of Genesis, uh, probably sometime next year. But what we're going to do is finish this mini-series in Ecclesiastes, and as we look forward to the new year and all the things that God's going to bring to our lives and the seasons that He's bringing and how to react to it. And so we're going to do that right now. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Ecclesiastes 3. We're going to start in verse 6. What the theme in Ecclesiastes 3 that Solomon's given is that there are different times and seasons that come to our lives and God ordains these to come in our lives, uh, and our responsibility is how we're going to react to these seasons. And that's where the impetus is put on us to respond correctly and biblically to the new season that's approaching us or leaving the season that He wants us to leave. So you're somewhere always between leaving and coming to a new one, and sometimes you're transitioning to a new season. But nonetheless, God will continue to bring seasons all the way until He takes us home. And what Solomon is trying to do is let us recognize this and then try to take the appropriate biblical reactions to it. And so we're going to plumb the depths as much as we can in the time that we have to kind of get an understanding of what he's trying to say. So we'll start in verse 6b. We've gotten that far, and so we'll try to get through two verses. We'll see what happens, but we'll, see what ha- we'll, 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 we'll take our shot at it right now. When it's, in 6b it says, a time to keep, a time to keep. And this ha- is a very broad principle, but what he's saying is that during certain seasons of our life, There are certain things that you must guard, you must protect, and that's where the idea of keeping comes from. You must keep it. You must hold on to something. And we are told in the Scriptures, as the church, we are told to hold fast to those things that are true. Hold fast to the doctrines that were delivered to us from the apostles and from Christ Himself. And this is one of the applications we can take from this. One of the big things we are facing right now is whether or not you and I are going to protect and hold to biblical values and biblical morality more than ever that is being challenged. And one of the rewards to the Philadelphia church is that you held to my name. You held to my word. And that means that they held their doctrine in the face of adversity. And the remnant is part part of the Philadelphia church, obviously. We're there. So what's happening to you right now and me right now is pressure, pressure from our society, pressure then from Christendom, the false church in Christendom, and pressure from compromising churches for you and I to surrender our values that we have long held and we know the scriptures say, but the pressure 
that is getting put on us to release those long-held traditional views that the Bible teaches is ever-present now. You and I are being pressured to give up the definition of what marriage is, according to the Bible. You and I are being pressured to give up the definition of a male and a female. You are, give, you are being pressured to give up what, what the Bible declares as love to a false version of love. As they say, love is love, right? Wrong. That's the new mantra. And you're constantly being pressured. So you and I can take the pressure coming from the outside. But it hurts us when we see other believers who have compromised put pressure on us to compromise and say things like, well, it's, you know, that's antiquated. That stuff written 2,000 years ago. That's stuff that, you know, applied back then, but it's not here today. Really, does God change? No, he says he doesn't change. I never change. And so what he writes 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago or whatever is still for today. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the eternal one who was and is and is to come. And when he says something's wrong or this is right, it's golden, it stays, it's solid, it's chiseled in stone. And right now, you're feeling the pressure to move off of that. And, and when, when it really starts getting personal, is not only other Christians start putting pressure on you, it's when your own family starts putting pressure on you. Oh, that's not how Jesus would be. That's not loving. That's intolerant. That's homophobic. That's Islamophobic or whatever. Or you're xenophobic. They want you to embrace globalism and things of that nature. Don't give it up. You hold fast. I don't care what comes against you, your own family, you hold to the word of God because now is a time to keep. Now is a time to, to protect the word of God. And by the way, if you do, you will be rewarded handsomely. According to Revelation 3, that Philadelphia church that holds tight to the word of God and doesn't compromise will be rewarded in the face of the adversity they go through. Hold on. Don't let anyone, he says, take your crown. You have a crown if you hold to the word of God. Let's, let's branch out in some other applications. What's, the question is, in our lives, what's worth keeping? We obviously talk about the word of God, but what's worth keeping in our lives? That's the question that Solomon's trying to get us to answer. Well, one of the things I want to put, a couple things that are I see a lot of times in people's lives, and they try to run from. What's worth keeping? I know it's going to sound weird. Problems. I know it sounds weird. We have a tendency that when God allows certain problems in our lives, our tendency is to escape the problem or run from it. That's our problem. And what God is trying to say is when these things come to us, I need you to make a decision. Is this problem curable or is this a coping problem? If it's curable, then he wants us to do something about it to alleviate it. Cure it. Do something. Take action against that. I need you to do this for us. And then another issue is if it can't be curable, then God is asking you, learn how to cope with it with the biblical tools I give you. Because some of the problems obviously come to our lives, you know, like health issues, you're going to have to learn to cope with that. You can't run from that. But a lot of people choose the course and the path of, I'm just going to escape. I'm just going to run. I'm going to get away from this. And I'm going to zone out, do drugs, do alcohol, 
become addicted, do whatever I need to do to escape the reality of me not wanting to face my problems. And when, when you see Solomon say a time to keep, there's a time that you need to embrace the problem and fight it head on. You have to start saying to yourself, I want this problem because I know this problem will make me grow to become more like Christ. I want this problem because I know it'll make me more mature. I want this problem because if I overcome it, I will be rewarded. And if I take on this problem, God will enable me to have victory over it. You have to change your whole mindset when it says it's a time to keep. A third application on a time to keep. Ask the question, what's worth keeping is relationships. Now, I want you to think about this because this is what really messes us up. Problems and people. Okay, that's what messes us up. We, do, we run from problems, and then we don't know who to connect to. That's been the problem for most of our lives. And the Bible is trying to guide us towards healthy people, biblically healthy people, and away from toxic, evil people that would do bad things to us. It's trying, God's trying to navigate us. So in our relationship with people, God wants us to have relationships, but he wants to have us the, have the proper relationships, something that's going to edify us, something that's going to build us up, not tear us down, because bad company corrupts good character, it says. And so part of the game of being a Christian is to know who to hang out with, who to be friends with. I've heard a lot of Christians, when they come to faith in Christ, they have to lose their old friends, because their friends are on a different path doing different things, have a different mindset. I'm getting to the point now where even other Christians, when you talk to them, they're on a different planet. They're on a different plane. It's hard to find good fellowship. It's hard to find like-minded believers today. They're on different planes, if you want to say. So when you're dealing with people, you have to ask some questions. Is the person that you're starting a relationship with or being a friend with, do, do they have the same intent that you do? Are they wanting to grow like Christ? Are they understanding the signs of the times? Or are they doing something different? That's the first question you got to ask. Can I relate to this person? Now, again, I'm not talking about evangelism. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. I'm talking about who do I surround myself with? Because inevitably, you will become who you hang out with. You will become like that. It just peer pressure will, will cause that in you. And then, you, then the question is, you have to ask, what kind of character am I dealing with? What kind of person am I dealing with? What, what have they exhibited in my life that I want to surround myself with? So, for instance, a lot of people will put in their lives people that are pulling them down. Now, the person might say, well, you know, I'm trying to change, and I'm sold out for Jesus, and I want to be a good Christian. And remember, they, all, they always will say, I'm sorry, but they never really change. You've seen that kind of person? Ask yourself about a person like that, who says they want to change, who says they love Jesus, who says they're trying to overcome barriers in their life. Ask this, are they involved in the change process? Do they have structure in their life to facilitate growth? Who's monitoring them and their growth? Do they have a motivation to actually change? Or is someone having to handheld hold them through the whole process? Do they have support? Do they have skilled help in their life navigating through the waters? What new truths are they incorporating into their new walk with the Lord? What have they learned about themselves and about Jesus? You see those kind of questions? Those are the questions you should apply to other people. 
And when you apply that template, it will show you who's really legit and who isn't. People can say they love Jesus and they want to become like them, but if they don't have the structure in place and the accountability in place, it won't happen. When someone's serious about their walk with the Lord, they will have the network. They will have the structure. They will tell you the new things they're learning about Jesus and about themselves. They will have other people mentoring them and helping them. That's how you know. See, so part of the game is I want to surround myself with people like that. I don't want to be around people who will bring me down to my old life and tempt me in that way. And this is part of the idea of what's worth keeping. Sometimes you have to break off relationships, and it just is part of the game. Think about this. Let's go to the other extreme, he says. And a time to throw away. A time to throw away, obviously, this is a biblical authority for garage sales, obviously, and spring cleaning, right? Every hoarder needs to read this verse, okay? Time to throw away, get rid of it. It's no good. We become pack rats for some reason. I don't know why, but we do. But anyway, it's a time to, basically what Paul, uh, sorry, Solomon is saying is it's a time to end something. You have to have enough wisdom to look at your life and say, when has something that I've been doing or relationship, when does that need to end? Something needs to end and, and, and throw away. And, and really, if you put these in, in, in our walk with the Lord, this principle is encapsulated by what Jesus said in Luke 9. I want you to read it with me. It's the same principle. He then said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, this is a discipleship passage, not a salvation passage. This is a discipleship passage. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So following me is a discipleship term. So please don't get this messed up with salvation. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now that... That typically is used for salvation passage, but it's not. As you can see, the context is discipleship. What is this idea of losing my life? It's the same concept of throwing something away. It's the idea of getting rid of the old life, getting rid uh, uh, and crucifying the sin nature. And, and the idea is if you want the true life, the true abundant life, you have to give up the old. You can't have both. You can't have your cake and eat it too. And he goes, whoever loses his life, your desires, what you desire for your own life, your plans need to be submitted to the Lord. Those things that you wanted in life have to be submitted to him, and he may say no to it. And if you do that, you will lose your life. But if you lose your own life, you will save it. What does that mean? If you take the way of the cross... If you're willing to take up your cross, follow him daily, and lose your old life, you'll be rewarded, and rewarded handsomely. But Christians who want to keep their old life, practice their old practices, will lose rewards. Doesn't mean they're not saved, but they will lose rewards. This is a, a, a passage about throwing away. Do you know what God would say? He would call in the Old Testament circumcision of the heart. Now, what do you mean by that? Let me explain this in, in kind of the most delicate way I could possibly explain this. But it's, it's apt for this, this principle of throwing something away. When God told Israel, I want your hearts circumcised, it obviously was a reference, a spiritual lesson to what 
they were practicing, that he had them practice, not only because of the Abrahamic covenant, but the Mosaic covenant of circumcising the males uh, on the eighth day. The ritual of circumcision, what they would do is cut the foreskin and throw the foreskin away. Do you see the idea of throwing something away? It's to be gone. So the idea when God told them, I want your heart circumcised, I want the old part of you thrown away. And hence, this is what the principle you see in Scripture of getting rid of that old life. It's hard to get rid of the old life. really is. Hey, I struggle with it myself. You're used to doing certain things. You're used to your default way of managing life. And it's hard. Here's the implications of it. When you start getting rid of your old life, your reputation with the world will get at stake. They will start looking at you funny. They will start categorizing you. They will start calling you names. You will lose your reputation with the world. That's why a lot of people don't want to give up their old life. They don't want to give up their plans. We have a plan for our life. We have a plan for our kids. And this is the way we think things are going to happen. And all of a sudden, reality hits, and our life takes so many different directions we could have never planned, and we get mad and angry, and we protest because we don't want to give up our plans. We protest, and we're not dying to self. Many people want to make a name for themselves. Well, in, in Christianity, there's only one name, and it's not ours. It's Jesus's. If you're living to create a name for you, I'll, I want to be recognized. I want, I want to be known for what I do. I want to be in the spotlight. That ain't going to work in Christianity. It's not going to work. We only exalt one name, and that's it. It's his name. And here's the deal. Here's, here's the hard part of losing your old life. It's going to affect you economically. It will. Because at some point in time, you're going to hit a ceiling in your own employment. You're going to hit a ceiling because they're going to ask you to compromise your values. They're going to say, well, we have to do this diversity training, and we have to talk about men coming in wearing high heels and a dress and putting lipstick on, and we have to pretend that they're females, so we need you to teach that. At some point, you're going to have to say no, and it will prevent the promotion. It will prevent you from rising up in that company, and you have to be okay with that. You will hit a ceiling economically. You won't be promoted. And maybe you might even be fired. I don't know. But it will affect you economically. So a lot of people don't want to give up their life because they don't want to give up the economics. Look, God will take care of you. He will provide for you, and you have to trust that. The goal in your life is not to be a CEO. The goal in your life is to become like Christ. And if being a CEO prevents that, then that's not for you. And you have to be okay with that. Most of the Christians for the last 2,000 years have been the dregs of society. They've been the poorest of the poorest. Do you know why? They're held down by their values. This world will not accept our values. Think about that today. How would you do in, in a situation if you worked for Google? What would you do if you worked for Disney? And they're making occult movies now with cartoons. Well, how would you do in that situation? Well, you wouldn't rise to the top because your values would keep you from rising. And so a lot of people realize, in order to die to self, I've got to give up a lot of economics. And you will. Sometimes you have to give up the hardest part, and is this, family traditions and uh, family values. You think, well, what do you mean by that? Every one of us comes from a family of origin issue. 
And usually in our walk with the Lord, we have to figure these things out. There are some good things we bring from our family, and then obviously there's some, some dysfunctional things we bring into our lives from our family. And it's your job and my job to figure out what dysfunction am I going to stop? What, dis- what cycle am I going to prevent that I adopted from my family and I'm continuing on? And I'm going to tell you this, it is one of the hardest things to do. Because you've been verified by your family of origin over and over again with the values in which your family shares. And what you start realizing when you match it up to the word of God, it doesn't square. Your family's values and the Bible's values will be in opposition and then you will have a problem at that point. Whether I go by the family tradition or I go by the word. Some people pick careers based on their family traditions. They can't work in any other industry other than a specific industry. They've got to reach a certain level of success to be acknowledged by their family. They have to make a certain amount of money to be acknowledged by their family. And if they don't, they're looked down upon and they feel the pressure. I've had people want to commit suicide because they can't keep their family of origin values. That's how bad it is. And it does affect us. And we have to realize I need to lose that. That's not coming from the Bible. That's coming from my grandpa. That's coming from my mom. That's coming from my dad. And that needs to stop today. Now, it's not a blanket. Understand that. You have to filter the good and the bad, obviously. But if you're incorporating dysfunction from your own family, you have to lose that. You'll never be able to grow further than that. So that's part of the application. But here's here's, here's the question we have to answer. Why is ending stuff so hard? Why is it so hard that someone who's dating somebody and everyone around them can say, man, that's the wicked witch of the West. You need to drop her like a bad habit, man. How come everyone around can see it, but he can't? How can we have so much hard times ending? Well, the first thing is we have conflicting desires inside of us, and those conflicting desires uh, cannot coexist with each other. So that creates a lot of anxiety in us. So let me explain this. When we have conflicting desires, it blinds us to the bad parts of things. We want something to work out so much. We desire to this, to have this, or this relationship, and we we ignore the bad parts. You see this a lot in relationships, right? They will marry somebody everybody knows they shouldn't marry. And you try to tell them the faults, and they were blind to it, right? Have you seen that? They can't see it? But then we take it on personally, and the, the idea is we have these mentalities of conflicting desires. I want to grow and mature spiritually and become more like Christ, but I don't want to put in the hard work. I want to be more like Christ, but I don't want to work on my issues. I want more time with my friends, but I also want to work on my marriage. I want to achieve more at work, but I want more time off with my family. I want to invest my money for retirement, but I want a new car. I want to eat my pie and cake and all that I can eat and still fit into my clothes. Right? And what you start realizing, people start having these conflicting desires, and it doesn't work. You, you, you know, if you want to be a good husband and a good father, you can't be a workaholic. It just doesn't work. You can try it, but it's not going to work. You won't be able to serve two masters. And this is the problem of why we have such a hard time ending something. It goes into number two. We, we are attached to a particular outcome for our lives. 
We want something. James talks about our desires as what causes conflict. And when we, we, we see this in our own lives, it's like, well, you have a desire for a particular outcome, but in order to get to that outcome, at some point, you're going to have to compromise. At some point, you're going to have to make a decision what you're going to let go as far as your values are concerned. And if, if you can't get past that particular outcome, you will compromise to get that outcome. I see so many parents compromise their Christian values for their kids. It's a plague. It's an epidemic. They call this the, the cult of the child. They have a desire for that child to go to the moon, to be the president of the United States, whatever. And they will stop at nothing to make sure that end is achieved. Nothing. They're like out of their minds. I remember a parent telling me, this was when my kids were younger, couldn't believe what I was hearing. Their kid was 10 years old. And they come up to me and he says, yeah, man, he's really pitching good and he's doing well. And, you know, he's going to be a Dodger one day. And I'm like, oh, my land. He's more likely to get struck by lightning twice to, to make the Los Angeles Dodgers roster. Are you out of your mind? Dead serious, deadpan, totally believed that that 10-year-old was going to the Dodgers one day. Like he was going to become an accountant or something like that. It's just that, that easy. Oh, I'm going to become a teacher. It was that easy in their mind. And I thought, oh, wow, these two parents are out of reality. They, they, they don't get it. But you know what happens? They have a desired outcome, and nothing's getting in the way of that. And if they have to violate Scripture in order to get that outcome, well, then the ends justify the means, and I will do it. Wow. Wow. Have you thought about how you're going to answer to Jesus on, the, on that judgment day? When he says, how come you got in the way of my relationship with your kids because you had an outcome? Woo, I wouldn't want to be part of that conversation. You're going to get a big tongue lashing. You might even lose rewards on that one. But this is why people won't end stuff. The third thing I want to note is we fail to see the whole picture. We fail to see the whole picture. And with that being said, what does that mean? The Bible's trying to give us a view of things that you see the good and the bad at the same time. That's a balanced picture of the world. It's a balanced picture of, of how you see human beings. You see the good and the bad. There's a sin nature, but there's good parts as well. That's a balanced view. But the problem is, when someone wants something so bad, they won't see the bad. They'll only see the pros, but they won't see the cons involved. And they could be dating Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and they'll see... Uh, Dr. Jekyll on Saturday night, but they will never see Mr. Hyde until they put the ring on the finger. And then Mr. Hyde comes out. But we all told you it was Mr. Hyde. She only saw Jekyll. And so all this problems is, this is why Indian things are so hard. People have ulterior motives of why they don't want something to end. They don't want to lose a relationship. They don't want to lose finances. They don't want to lose whatever. But it comes down to they have an idol, and they don't want to lose that idol. Let's go to the next phrase that Solomon points out. A time to tear. A time to tear. This reminds me of when Samuel had told Saul, it's over, dude. You've messed up so bad. 
I'm done. You're never going to see me again. And you remember what Saul, King Saul did as Samuel was leaving. He went and grabbed the, the hem of his garment and ripped the prophet Samuel's garment. You remember that scene? And what did Samuel say? Just as you have ripped my garment, so will the kingdom be ripped from you and torn from you. And the idea is that Saul would be divided from the kingdom. He'd be removed, excommunicated as king. As you know, David would take his place eventually. But this principle, a time to tear, is the idea of tearing fabric away from the other part of the garment, tearing it away. And why do we, why would we tear it away? Because something is not fitting anymore. It's dirty. It's filthy. Something's wrong. So we tear it off and we throw it away. And Solomon is saying there are times in your life where you're going to have to divide. The kingdom was divided from Saul and given to David. This is where the idea of excommunication comes from and plays right in to the principle that, and please hear me, division is okay if it's based on someone not obeying the truth. You hear this mantra today that we just got to have unity. We got to have unity. We just need to get along and, and this and that and, and unity at what cost? Theology? Can I drop my theology for unity? That's what they want me to do. We can't unify when someone's messed up theologically. You can't unify with a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness or whatever. You just can't hold hands and say, hey, we're all the same. No, we're not. I see right now, you know, this idea of Chrislam being brought into the church, where it's a, a blend of Christianity and Islam, thinking that's going to work. That's crazy. Catholic Church is involved in it. Most of Protestant, Protestantism is involved in it. And they're, they're blending Islam with Christianity. You can't do that. That's unequally yoked. And on a personal level, this is going to hit you the hardest, my friends. It will hit you the hardest. Look what Jesus said about this division, that division is okay. Do not think I have come to bring peace on earth. That's what most people think. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Some of you right now, your own enemies are in your own household because of this. Jesus is saying, if you follow me and accept my truth, I'm going to divide your family. So be prepared. Because the ones who want the truth will side with you, and the ones who don't will come against you. Your own enemies will come from your own family. Wow. Furthermore, even in the church, division is okay. Look at this example. This is from the Apostle Paul to the Corinth church. The Corinth church, I went wild and went crazy. And this is what he said. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. He's talking about believers, by the way. I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother or a sister who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner. Not even to eat with such a person. Did you catch that? Let's just stop right there. Don't eat with them. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved for the day in the day of the Lord Jesus. What does this mean? It seems so harsh. Brandon, I can't believe you're teaching this. It's so harsh. It's not, it's not pushing unity. It's saying when you have a believer who will not stop their sin, whether it's sexual morality, extortion, whatever they're doing, you are to divide from them. You are not even to eat with the person. 
I can't see any more clearer than that. But yet I present this to people and they think, oh, that's just too harsh. I can't believe Brandon thinks like that. I'm not making it up. He did. They go, Brandon's just divisive and he just wants to divide people. Look, I'm obeying that. If you have some clown messing around like that, who calls on, calls on the name of Jesus, says they're a believer, and they're messing around like that, I have no other option with you. If I'm going to obey this, I have no other. I can't have Thanksgiving with you. I can't have Christmas with you. I'm not even going to lunch with you because it says I can't eat with you. Either Paul's right or he's not. Now, does it, this doesn't apply to unbelievers, by the way. He's not talking about unbelievers. Unbelievers are, are, are dealt with in a different manner because they don't know. They're ignorant. He's talking about believers who do this. And why does he tell them to do that? For the destruction of the flesh, to redeem them, to wake them up. See, most people are Christians, let's put it this way, who get in sin, stay in it, because the people surrounding them don't give them any consequences. So they, they, they go into their sin, and nothing's changed. Hey, I'm shacking up. Hey, I'm doing this. I'm robbing banks. I, hey, come over for dinner. We love you, man. We're just going to show you the love of Jesus. I know you're robbing banks, but we love you. Come eat a meal with us. Wrong move. Look at Romans uh, 16 and Titus real quick. Now, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses. Now, this is divisions over just being an idiot, okay? They're, just, they're causing problems. They're just, they're just troublemakers in the church, right? Contrary to the doctrine which you've learned, and avoid them. If you're around a believer who's causing divisions, you're to get away from them. They are no good. They are toxic Christians. Get away from them. Look what uh, Titus says. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. And then basically it says after that, have nothing to do with them. So you warn a person twice. After twice, don't give them any more information. Just, just get away from them. Why do Christians continue to hang out with people, other Christians, who are divisive? Why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense. But yet, you'll see this. So that person who's causing the problem, the troublemaker, he's to be isolated and removed. And yet, they still continue to function. And, and if they're continuing to allow to function... They spread their cancer and the leaven leavens the whole loaf because no one will corral it and say, hey, enough, dude, you need to stop. This is what Solomon's trying to get. There's a time to tear. And this person might be your relative. It might be a good friend of yours. But man, if they are off the mark, causing division, immorality, you're to have nothing to do with them. Wow. That's kind of hard to practice sometimes. So with all that said, why don't we do it? I, I, that's the question I ask. Why don't we do it? Why is it so hard to do that to relatives, to other Christians who are, are knuckleheads? Why? Here's the deal. Because we value the wrong things. We, we don't understand the hierarchy of values from the Bible. And here's the mistake. Here's the big mistake that most Christians make. You value relationship over truth. If you value relationship over truth, you will never put consequences and limitations on knuckleheads. You just won't because you're putting the relationship above the truth. Nothing gets above the truth. Nothing. 
That's the rubric in which you use to evaluate people. And if that's happening, understand that someone's putting the relationship above. And I get it. I don't want to lose relationships. Do you? It's hard. It's hard to watch somebody that you walked with and, and you were friends with or whatever go south. But what are you going to do? It's happening all over the place, isn't it? Let me give you a principle. It has to do with hoarding, okay? Why don't people divide? Obviously, putting the relationship over... over uh, truth, but it's also this, not having something or someone does not decrease the value of your life. Not having someone in your life or something in your life does not decrease the value of your life. This is at the heart of what a hoarder thinks. A hoarder thinks they have to have things in order to have value of life. That's why they collect. That's why they don't get rid of things because the value is wrapped up in the things around them. That's why they never get rid of it. In a lot of ways, people are hoarders thinking that things or people give them value. Many of us grew up without parents or parents at least were checked out. Not there for you. Many of you told me your story. Is your life less value because you didn't have a dad or didn't have a mom? No. You're just as valuable not having those things. Your value is not derived in the things you don't have. Your value is based on who you are in Christ. But people start evaluating their life. Well, if I do this, I'm going to lose that relationship. And if I do this, I'm going to lose that relationship. And then they come back and say, I have no value because no one needs me and no one wants me and I don't have any friends and I don't... No, you're becoming a hoarder in your mentality. Life is not about all the things you have. That's not where you derive value. And unfortunately, that's what happens. You become like this, spiritually speaking. They won't make right decisions to get rid of toxic relationships or whatever it needs to happen because they're hoarding spiritually. One more point and we'll end on this. The reason we don't end things very well especially in relationships that need to be ended, is we fail to understand who deserves our trust. We fail to understand who deserves our trust. Because we don't evaluate things properly, because we have a goal in mind for what we want to happen. We want the perfect Martha Stewart Thanksgiving with everybody at the table happy, right? Because that's the desire. We're just going to push forward and we fail to understand who I should trust. And we bring people into our lives that we shouldn't trust at all. They're backstabbers, they're gossipers, they're liars. But boy, we wanted to make it happen. How do you, let me ask you this. How do you have a relationship with a liar? Just perpetually lies. Like habitually, they manage life through lies. You, you can't do that. How do you have a relationship with someone you can't trust? How do you, how do, you do that? It's, it's impossible. You can pretend and fake it, but it's nearly impossible. What the Bible's trying to do is, you need to be able to find who you can trust. So let me give you an illustration. Right now, I've been watching Tiger down there at Torrey Pines right now. They're at Torrey Pines, and they're playing the farmer's insurance open. And I've been watching Tiger and the whole tournament. And let's pretend that Martians came, okay? Not that Martians are real, because the, the fake ones are demons, okay? So if they tell you it's a UFO, it's a demon, okay? But let's pretend Martians existed, and they came to this earth and said, we're going to destroy your planet 
wipe it off the face of the earth. And the only way you can save your planet is we're going to have a six-foot put on number 18 at Torrey Pines. That's the whole Tiger uh, got to the playoffs with, with Rocco. Remember that in 2008? And that putt's a downhill putt. I think it curves to the left a little bit. And the stint meter, I don't know what stint meter is. I, uh, it, it's, probably, it's probably like putting on concrete, man. It's just fast. And, and the, the Martian says to us, the only way you're going to save humanity is you need to put someone there on that putter and putt that putt at 18 on Torrey Pines and hit the putt. If you guys miss, we're killing your whole planet. Now, you have a choice. You can put Tiger Woods to hit that putt or Ofer Winfrey. Who do you pick? Well, of course. I'm going to pick Tiger. Everyone in this room would say, I want Tiger to hit the putt to save humanity and, and save us from the Martians going to destroy our planet, right? Everyone would pick Tiger. Of course, Gopher Winfrey's never touched a putter. I don't know how she would putt. She would use like a cue ball maybe and try to do it like a, a billiards thing. Who knows? But I'm not putting it in the hands of Gopher Winfrey. Here's the question that Solomon's trying to get at. Who's holding the putter in your life? Who are you trusting with that putter? Is it some rogue Christian that can't get their act straight and can't get their head screwed on straight? And if I, have I put the putter in that person's hand? Or have I put the putter in somebody that's mature, spiritually mature and knows how to work that putter? You see what Solomon's getting at? So as you leave today and who you can trust, ask yourself who's holding the putter. Let's pray. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.